Welcome to Adaptify. I'm Mike, I'm a paraplegic from New Zealand, and it's my mission to find the Adaptifiers of the world. People who have overcome challenges and found new, creative, interesting ways to be free despite needing to use a wheelchair for their mobility. Hey everyone, welcome back. Thanks so much for joining me once again. Today's guest is Stuart Dunn. Stuart is the founder of Cyclone Mobility in the UK. Stu's a bit of a legend. Back in the day in the 80s, 90s, he was in the center of uh, revolution in design where wheelchairs were once clunky and heavy and all of a sudden they were light and he saw firsthand what that meant for people and what they could do. He manufactured wheelchairs out of the UK and started his business that way. He also has a fascinating insight into what it takes to work 60 hours a week as a tetraplegic and how to maintain his health and well-being and his relationship with his wife and his kids. Stu, I'm really privileged to have you on the show. Thanks so much for joining me today. Yeah, it's great to uh, talk to you. Uh, I'm not happy to hear that you're in a sunny country, but uh, <laughs> I'm happy to talk to you. <laughs> so, uh, you know, for the listeners out there, Stuart, whereabouts are you at the moment? And, um, you know, why are you part of this adaptive community? How did you end up uh, as a wheelchair user? Well, 1985, in fact, 1st of July 1985, I decided to be the fastest teenager in a, in a car and rolled a car a numerous amount of times, broke my neck at C6-7 and essentially spent the next five, six months rehabilitating for life in a wheelchair. Yeah, rough deal. And so how old were you when that happened? So I was 17 years old. Okay. And just learning to, uh, you know, handle a car, I suppose. When can you get your license in the UK? I got my license two months before I crashed the car. I remember uh, racing my mum's car when I was learning to drive and I had a few mishaps. Uh, you know, that, that, that thrill and excitement uh, when you're a young man, uh, you know, you don't often – understand the consequences that that can happen um what was what were the, the months that followed that like for you so immediately after i was i, I believe i was in a drug-induced coma for a couple of weeks and and that's kind of you know the, the memories of of those first few weeks are sketchy little bits ambulance taking me to hospital ambulance taking me from hospital to especially spinal injuries unit um and then just some vague memories of you know waking up and sort of thinking hmm, uh, life looks a little bit different from this lying down position so i i then spent the next five months in rehabilitation learning that i was using a wheelchair and how to get myself around issues in my upper torso so what function do you have and what, what are some of the limitations that uh, that were a result of that accident? So my function, I'm C6-7 tetraplegic. Um, I have a little bit of function in my left hand in terms of the, the movement I've got in my fingers. Not very powerful. Um, my right hand, I've got the tiniest little flicker in my um, little finger. Nothing else in hands, but... 
arms and I'm, I'm pretty strong um anybody understands physiotherapy terms I'm power four plus in the left hand side and power four in the right hand side so I've got enough power to lift my body weight I'm reasonably slender so it means my mobility is okay um however not as good as somebody that may be you know t4 five six seven you always want something more somebody's got hands i want hands somebody's got mid torso i want mid torso so you know that's my limitation so you use a manual wheelchair predominantly right for for moving around um and you know, you're. I guess you're lucky. You have uh, some power in your arms to to be able to power you. Um, but you know, that, I imagine that would have been a super frustrating realization. Um, you know, like seeing other people with uh, with more function. How did you How did you cope with that psychologically? You know, it's it's fairly crazy to 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 say this and to realize it, but I instantly got the deal. I instantly knew that life was going to be in a wheelchair and I don't know why, I don't know how, but I instantly knew that I wasn't going to be running about jumping. I wasn't going to be doing those things that I did as a, as a stupid teenager. Um, so that was great. That was really good. Cause that realization that life's different and life's in a wheelchair and the fact that I'd done it, to myself i hadn't been a third party um you know victim of of a, a an incident so so immediately there was nobody to blame and, and, and i could just get on with it um couple <laughs> in rehabilitation one of the craziest things was a couple of ropes to the paraplegics chairs and we went off down the pub I couldn't push down there myself, <laughs> but the two-mile trek to the uh, to the local pub um, was pretty easy once you were strapped up to the back of a, a paraplegic. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic! I won't even ask how you got back, but um, <laughs> wobbled. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic! Yeah, interesting about the the victim sort of mindset. So, I. In a way, I, I was, uh, you know, I was hit hit by a car. But in the same token, I also took responsibility straight away for for being the other half to that incident. You know, I was I was on a skateboard, and I was I was on the road, and and I made that decision as well. And I think as soon as you do come to the realization that all right, this is this is it, then you can move on. So for for listeners out there, you know. You just, you know, people say, just get on with it. Well, you know, you can't move on until you do make peace with the situation and, and actually acknowledge the reality of it. And once you do, then then you can start to understand what's next. So, you know, I, th- I think it's great. Perhaps you had an, a natural uh, attitude that, that enabled you to do that and just, just get on with it. But, you know, sort of thinking about the past and being stuck in the past isn't going isn't gonna to help you, is it? Yeah, no, because I think everybody needs to um make that realization that that tomorrow's another day and and you know the only way of making tomorrow a nicer other day is by actually making it better yourself you know making making that day really good you've just recently met a really good friend of mine that's um skipping around the countries of the world doing the handy flight 
Um, and you know, the, uh, Alex was was <laughs> personally was it was a victim and 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 got uh, personal injury compensation. But immediately he's had this fantastic life after injury, and and I think those those are the real big things for people to draw from it. That um, just because life's not exactly the same as it was. It doesn't mean it's over. I've had a fantastic life in 34 years of sitting down. So good, so good. All right, so tell us a little bit about, yeah, and it was great to meet Alex, and we will, we'll be talking to Alex on the podcast too. Uh, so, yeah, super excited about that. So tell us, Stuart, um, obviously, had you finished school at that point, what, what happened after you got out of the hospital? So I was halfway through A-levels, which is kind of our higher high school education, not university level. Um, And immediately my school wasn't adapted. It was a three-floor building. The head teacher was a new head teacher and wasn't going to accommodate the place. So I was immediately in limbo land as to where do I go? But, But my main focus was, look, I'm going to do something. And so I started down a progression of my um, education that I, I, I'd been doing, which was, you know, steering towards a higher level education. Um, my goal was to be a tornado pilot and the RAF. And of course, that that goal had disappeared. You know, mm. that, that, that one had just um, gone away. That was never going to happen again. But one of the things that I really wanted to do was I wanted to be able to fly. Uh, that was that was like to me. I ne- <laughs> I needed to be able to fly, and I knew I wasn't going to do that with the RAF. So I kind of knew that the only way was if I paid my own way. So I needed a good career. Um, so I knew I needed those hmm. steps on the ladder to go through the process of becoming, you know, reasonably well educated to deal with whatever future was going to come along and so, so tell us about tell us about that what what uh, what was the outcome of that of that goal i mean that's a it's so good to have a you know like so good to have a grunty goal to um to set your mind towards and you know flying there's so many elements to to achieving that goal um you said education was was one of them and of course obviously finance is you know part of that so i imagine you thought that education and and having a career that enabled you to have some sort of financial um, freedom would enable you to achieve that goal what uh, how did yeah. that all pay out so um, eventually after a few different um, uh, courses and studies and a, and a kind of a Mickey Mouse course at a college of the business studies which uh, I, I jumped out of I ended up doing a, a foundation course in accountancy and, and accountancy was a career that I'd kind of chosen that looked as if it was going to be the right option um, I, I, and there was there was there was only one goal when it came to accountancy it wasn't because I loved looking at somebody else's numbers it was the goal was that this is a, a reasonably well-paid career and, and there's opportunities to all the higher higher financial levels and so that was the career that I, I started to look down. Um, but then uh, a fortunate opportunity came along that, that changed my direction. And I kind of changed it, not for a, not for a financial goal, but for a kind of a more, um, I don't know, more, a, a more fulfilling um, uh, life. And a friend of mine said to me, well, let's make some wheelchairs because 
I always looked at the wheelchairs that were there and thought two and a half thousand pounds from the states. These were the ones. There were Swiss chairs. There were, you know, the, the, these products were reasonably expensive, and I, I kind of thought oh, I can make something a lot cheaper than that. So together with a family friend that was an engineer and another guy that was kind of hot on sales, a guy by the name of John Roney, we formed a company and started to piece together these wheelchairs. And we sold them at £900 when the competition was 2000 2500 And it was, it was great because we, we suddenly boomed. We, you know, we sold just over 150 chairs in our first year. We made just short of £100,000 in turnover. And it was, wow, this, <laughs> this is serious. This isn't just a game. This is serious. So we um, gradually started to piece everything together. And that was the birth, you know, back in 1989 of um, Cyclone Mobility and Fitness, as it was. Um, and we started to look at other products that allied alongside wheelchairs, fitness equipment. And because I was in a, um, I was playing wheelchair rugby um, for Great Britain at that time, we were looking at those products that would not only provide mobility to people, but provide you know the the rehabilitation goals, the fitness goals for the sports people, and that and that that was the foundation of it. And that's that was back in 1989, which seems a hell of a long time ago now. 30 years in November this year. <laughs> well done, yeah. And I suppose there wouldn't have been a great deal of choice back then, you know, in terms um, of products and and supplies. Like now, it seems you can jump online and you can explore, you know, products from all over the world. What yeah. um, so you, you were manufacturing wheelchairs? We and, and locally in the UK. Yeah, um, we were based in Chester. Um, the fabricator was based in Bolton, which was 35, 40 miles away. Um, the upholsterer was based in Chester as well. Um, in my back room, so in my extension on the family's house. Um, and my young brother, who was 15 at the time, with his friend, put them together at the weekends. So it was, <laughs> it was kind of a, it was a lapstacker. <laughs> yeah, it was. You know, it was the foundations of you know a future, really. And 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 it was just, it was one of those things that you think these things don't happen, but then when you look out of the history of mountain bikes and you look at the history of everything else, it happens every time. Cannondale, which is one of the, the world's renowned um, mountain bike manufacturers, they actually started above a pickle factory in, in, in Wisconsin. So, <laughs> you know, all those, uh, these little things, you know, Apple Mac started in his, in his garage with his mates. Yeah, these all these things start, that little seed corn, you know, that little seedling that just goes boom, 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 you know. And the biggest the biggest name to me in wheelchair manufacturing history is a guy by the name of Jeff Minnebracker. Now, Google him. You won't find a lot on him. Mm. But quickie wheelchairs that everybody knows – Marilyn Hamilton bought one of Jeff Minnebracker's quadras before she made Quickie. So, 
you know, these are these are things that happened right back in the 70s. And people mm. were making this stuff, but there just wasn't that big market that there is now. There's a huge market now. Yeah, well, so when you say there's a huge market now versus back in the day, what, why is that? I think the biggest thing is that, um, you know, Ludwig Gutmann, um, who was the foundation of, of, of making us paralysed people um, become recognised as partially paralysed first mm. and taxpayers second. You know, he, he instantly said, get those guys out of the coffins. They're not dead. Get them out. Get them rehabilitated. Get them playing sport get them working and those were the big foundations in the early days you know in those 70 well 50s 60s 70s so those in the early 70s they were using chairs that were called everest and jennings and carters these were big 56 64 pound wheelchairs that you know they stripped the armrests off them they tried to get them as light as they could but then all of a sudden this industry where Jeff had made these own things in his own back bedroom. And, you know, then Marilyn came along with Quickie and and and, and then, you know, took the, that little bit further. And then, you know, that everybody started to realise that disabled people didn't want to sit around and do nothing. They were just forced to because they they didn't have the ability to do it. So gradually, as it became mm. easier for wheelchair users to move around, you know, then the freedom started to happen. The acceptance, you know, the acceptance that, oh, these guys actually can be part of society and they can be an active part of society and they can be a rewarding part of society. Um, and I think that, that those were massive changes, 70s, 80s, 90s. They were the big years of the wheelchair industry. We had everything popping up left, right and centre. You know, the, back in, into the 90s, tie light came about from uh, Quickie's original titanium chairs. And it, it just, everything just seemed to come together. And these guys that were entering marathons like Marty Ball, and Jim Knorb that were entering under pseudonyms because they couldn't enter as a disabled person. They're entering as an able-bodied person and just turning up to the race. <laughs> These awesome. guys were breaking the boundaries of going, hang on a second, you can't stop us because we're already in the race. You know, it was the same as the women breaking the, you know, the New York rule. You weren't, women weren't allowed in New York Marathon until, you know, there was the big revolution of a woman going in with, with an initial instead of a real name. And these things, and I think it was that empowerment of disability that said, right, we're going to go for this. So because they said, right, it's all right, we're going to go for it, then the equipment to allow them to enable themselves just came along well it sounds like a super exciting time uh, to be to be a wheelie and to be involved in that uh, almost like a revolution so you know there was the desire for you know people didn't want to sit around but they also needed the technology to help them do so so there was this kind of cross-pollination if you like you know attitude with uh, advances in technology and boom all of a sudden you've got barriers being pushed um, and and you were you were a part of that 
Yeah, it was. I mean, um, the eighties, nineties, and and two thousands. Those, you know, those were the exciting years. In fact, probably the nineties was the biggest exciting years of of, of change and movement because. You know um, that that was the radical movements. Those those were when things changed from being, you know, the fifty six pound wheelchairs to, you know, the the the, the six seven eight kilo wheelchairs. Wow, big change, big change. Um, I mean, I know from the first hospital wheelchair I used was a steel frame uh, wheelchair. And it would have been from. Uh, maybe late 80s or, or early 90s versus now what I have as a lightweight titanium chair, such a difference in the way you, you felt, uh, you know, not in terms of visually the way it looked, but also, you know, the way you could move it and and how, uh, you know, it's like driving a, a bigger heavy bus versus driving a Ferrari, you know, that's what it felt like. And, uh, you know, everyone likes the idea of uh, being able to drive a Ferrari, right? So, um, so yeah. Absolutely. So, and it and it rev- and it revolutionised the mobility, not just with the wheelchair, but with the car, because it meant that instead of dragging this big heavy weight into a now most of your your listeners, most of your, you you know your people that are following you won't ever remember the 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 disabled invalid trike made by AC Cars, AC Cars that made the AC Cobra sports car made a, a oh, yeah. you know this. <laughs> two two cylinder uh, vehicle that was three wheels that would only allow one person in it and a wheelchair that would be pulled in behind it the little blue things google it you'll find them <laughs> and uh, wow. and and these things they changed from um then and then in the 70s late 70s alfred becker came about and said look i can make a hand control go in a regular car so you pull it to accelerate, push away to brake, and there you go. You're in, you're in a normal car. And then the manufacturers, and in fact Ford, made its own disabled person's escort, three-door, get your chair in and out. And then you could lift your chair into the passenger seat or onto the back seat. And then all of a sudden you became not just mobile because you were more able to push the wheelchair around, but you came more able because you could drive quite easily. And instead of trying to squeeze the girlfriend into the, you know, down by the foot controls and some of the old guys, this is not my story. This is just the old guys that we mix with, you know, instead of squeezing somebody into a seat that wasn't really there, you can now have somebody on your passenger seat and somebody in the back seat. So you suddenly became more socially able to, um, you know, work with people. When I first came out of Burwood, I, I didn't have a car with hand controls and uh, my wife, Kirsten, was just having to drive me and ferry me all around the place. And, man, was that awful for, for both of us, you know. Um, it was it was a terrible feeling. And as soon as I, you know, was able to get my car with hand controls, wow, what, I mean, that was that was a massive turnaround, you know. It was it was totally, totally freedom. So, you know, I'm I'm super thankful for these innovations that, you know, that you and your peers in the past have uh, helped establish. Um, and, you know, the future's exciting. Uh, now we're in a sort of electric revolution, if you like, with all sorts of electric assist devices, which are helping, 
you know, that are helping high-level tetraplegics, for example, use manual wheelchairs, whereas before they really would need to use a power chair and, um, you know, and all sorts of wheelchair attachments, front wheelchair attachments that, you know, will rapidly increase your range and at the pace at which you can navigate, uh, you know, city streets, but also off-road and um, hand cycles with electric assists and, you know, it's, Again, I, I get the sense that there, there's an electric revolution in mobility that uh, that we're in right now. Yeah, I think the, the, the lithium world has really changed that and the fact that um, the motor vehicle technology and, and, and cycle technology and, and everything else is gearing towards this electric revolution. It's meant that the mobility industry can really pick up on it. And the, we we import the Batek in the UK, and you've probably seen that um, over mm. in New Zealand. It's a phenomenal piece of kit. And, you know, within two, three seconds, it's clipped to a manual wheelchair and uh, you can get up to 20 miles an hour under electric power. But if you want to go down a hill, you can go as fast as you want, as fast as your um, your 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 uh, your, your balls will let you. <laughs> <laughs> your courage will allow, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, and you know, it's just it's it's really it's just amazing kind of feeling. And then there's the off-road vehicles that are available, and and it's just you know so much fun. Hey, now as far as I see. One of the major constraints we still have in this space is funding of these pieces of equipment. Now, there's all sorts of different uh, healthcare services and um, tiers, if you like, of coverage. We have it in New Zealand with with two to three main ways that disability is covered. Um, what is it like in the UK? And and I get the sense that you know there might be this new technology come through, and then you've got to convince the the funders, the payers, to um, you know either change some legislation. And and is there a bit of a lag with that? You know, what what was your experience with that uh, in in the UK? Well, the UK is it's a phenomenon to itself. I, I think. Um, we are massively behind with assisting with funding for equipment from our state. It, 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 there are elements of if you need a powered wheelchair, then then they'll, they'll they'll fund to a certain level. If you need a manual wheelchair, they can fund with a voucher system, which we have 152 different authorities in the in the uk that will dish out this funding and it can range from anything from 300 pounds to three and a half thousand depending where you are in the country it's a massive lottery um but oh. we just haven't we haven't got a fantastic system for support funding in the uk the only really good support system that we do have in the uk is if a person's working and that equipment is providing the the extra benefit that will put them close to their able-bodied peers, then the disability element of it is funded. So a lightweight wheelchair, a batic attachment to get them around, a smart drive, you know, um, hand controls for your car, adaptations for the vehicle if you've got a caravel or something like that. All that's funded through this access to work scheme. And it's designed so that we can dry, push more disabled people into a working mode. 
I think there's twofold on this. One, they become taxpayers, and it's probably threefold, in fact. Um, two, they become active part of a social environment, so they're not sort of left there and and drawing on the state. They, they also become physically and psychologically fitter mm. because they're doing a day, you know, daily, daily working. And I think that's so important to have a purpose in life. You know, whether it be work or sport or whatever your chosen purpose is, to have that purpose in life really does change you, whether you're disabled or able-bodied. It massively changes your, um, you know, your, your scope in life. I imagine it, it would extend your life lifespan. I'm, I'm sure there'd be studies done on this. But, you know, you know, if you're, you're the states and you're looking at the financial cost of somebody actively participating in society, I imagine that they're a lot less of a burden if they are more active, they're, they're happier in themselves and they're, they're social rather than, you know, giving up and feeling as though, you know, they're worthless, right? I, I imagine for the state there would be a definite cost benefit, but whether or not that means they're willing to, to, to help um, at the level that's really needed is, um, you know, obviously it's, it's what we're talking about here now. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then you've got another element that um, in the UK we have um, an incredibly well compensated system for those that are third party injured as a spinally injured person. So if you're injured uh, um, in work, if you're injured as a passenger in a car, if you're hit by somebody pulling out in front of you on a motorbike, this personal injury compensation system is incredibly um you know lucrative for the for the um the pi's involved because it's you know it's a serious compensation structure that they have to work towards and and they are there, there are some fantastic um legal eagles out there helping people with disability but it can you know it can add millions um considerable millions you know anything between two and 25 million pounds to somebody's life budget Mm. which dramatically changes people's ability to buy the equipment that 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 is out there and you know unfortunately that that just seems to be the case at the moment that there are that those people that are you know that that are the um the third party injured um they are the ones that that do get the um, the considerable resources that give them a, um, you know more benefits in life um, from a capital point of view. Hey, so Stuart, if you, for example, were to, you know, jump in your car and hit somebody and uh, render them a, a paraplegic, for example, would they then sue you personally, or would they go after your insurance company? Does you, so does your vehicle insurance, for example, cover you for, yes. for this? Yeah, it's vehicle insurance. Basically, they are going to um, claim negligence. Um, so the individual person that hit hit the, uh, um, the, the, the pedestrian walking across the road, um, they would be determined as, you know, there would be a, a, a legal claim as to whether it was the pedestrian's fault because they walked out in front and the car had no chance to stop or, you know, it was the driver's fault because the driver was driving far too fast and the pedestrian was walking across the pedestrian crossing. So there's going to be litigation that finds out liability first and then the quantification comes later. So, you know, 
what is then the the, the individual's personal injury award. Um, and that has a you know it's a massive structure. It can take anything from two years through to you know ten years to claim, to get all that structured properly. But mm. it is down to the um, the individual's insurance. So it's third party insurance. It, it is absolutely. Um, paramount it is, it is legislation that anybody driving a vehicle in the UK has to have third-party um, insurance. Um, it's, gotcha. It's, yeah. it's against the law for them not to have third-party insurance, and that's to cover them for those eventualities that, that somebody is injured. Yeah, well, so, I mean, diving into how we can even the – playing field if you like for those that aren't injured is, is a is a big topic and it's kind of political and I'm not really sure uh, we, we should go down that road it's needless to say that in New Zealand it's more or less the same you have a you have an injury you get well looked after by the ACC the accident compensation corporation if you're not say you know you have a spinal cord cyst or something and it leaves you uh, with a spinal cord injury uh, or any other disability you're you know you're funded by the state and it is chalk and cheese it's it's a you know poor substitute really um and um and and we see that people do struggle to find the mobility equipment and and other um, other support services that they need to uh, to get back up to the same level as somebody and uh we've we've actually been to parliament to speak to the ministers about this uh last year we went and uh, to try and bridge this gap so you know we're, we're doing our best here in new zealand to uh uh, to try and and do that, um, but um, yeah, but, there's you know. always there's, the, the, there's also a number of charities out there from you know philanthropists that are you know looking to change people's lives. We have one that's very local to ourselves, a, a very successful house builder um worth in excess of 800 million pound personally mm. um that has a fund of over 200 million pounds that he's using to change people's lives uh, and such you know a, a fantastic way um Steve Morgan Foundation it's called and 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 they are dramatically changing people's lives there's others there's there's um you know in our country there's a regain charity there's aspire and and a number of other charities that help people um with capital resources for for equipment well yeah thankful for those there's a number in the states as well that that do just the same um so big shout out there to all of all of you uh foundations and charities out there that are helping this community of ours we yeah we really appreciate it no doubt so tell me Stuart you know you've got a successful business you've been running a successful business which has an incredible impact on people's lives did your uh you know your spinal cord injury in any way affect your ability to to run that business what what were some of the challenges if any um from from your disability point of view um there's there's elements of physical ability um I'm you know, C six seven tetraplegic, and and thirty years ago, somebody told me I wouldn't be able to do a full time job. No, I don't do a full time job. I work sixty to eighty hours a week. <laughs> so, uh, so that's kind of it's not quite full time, is it? Because there's more than that hours in the uh, seven day week. Um, 
<laughs> although we do have to have some time for sleeping. Um, no, but but uh, yeah, that a lot of my working role has been in the logistics, the organising, the planning, the growing, the business development, the understanding of the product that's needed for the market and the product and finding the product that's out there. So I think the negatives that I might have had in the physical ability have been positives in the fact that I've been able to source what I consider the best in the world. You know, we get I continuously search the world market for the best of its kind um, from whether it be Canada, Barcelona or Italy, you know, wherever it is in the world, we, we are consistently looking for the best in its class. Fantastic. Hey, you mentioned before that you represented Great Britain in wheelchair rugby. Uh, what was that? What was that journey like? Um, that was fun before it became political and really, uh, really, really difficult and sporty. No, I mean it was the early days, the 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 nineties, the, the early nineties, when we used to play um, wheelchair rugby in our everyday chairs. Um, not like the big. Um, um, mega defender gladiator style um, mm. wheelchairs that are used in rugby now um, and it was fun um, you know I got to travel um, I got you know across to Canada and America and Europe just going and playing wheelchair rugby and having a bit of fun with some guys and and I think the biggest thing is I, I got physically fit because of it, because I had to be physically fit mm. um, to get into the team. But as well, that peer development, that's a massive thing that, you know, people with disabilities mixing with other people of a similar level, you know, rather than mixing with able bods and feeling like the one that's not can't quite do that, can't jump in the pool and, mm. you know, climb the steps and, and do those things, that, you know, you became what you became one of the best in the country at what you played and it gives so much self-confidence so for anybody that's really looking for that you know achievement level go and do something that that you know play a plane air ability is a fantastic organization go and prove that you can do something that, that and excel at it at, you know your own personal level that's really interesting that you say that when i was first out of rehabilitation. I didn't want to hang out with other wheelchair users and I just wanted to get back to doing things with my mates. But it was it was a tough thing because there was this comparison between what I could do and what they could do. And uh, the, the more I think about it, the more – and speaking to other, particularly tetraplegics that didn't have the same um, potential recreation options as, as I do as a paraplegic – they said, you know, wheelchair wheelchair rugby, like, <laughs> you know, wheelchair rugby was just one of those things that, that and wheel, wheelchair football as well. Um, they said it just, you know, gave me a level playing field and, um, yeah, like you said, a peer group to uh, to just um, bounce ideas off and, and understand what was possible. One, one of the first, you know, I guess peer sort of group things I did was uh, sailing and I remember driving down, I was, you know, maybe three or four weeks out of hospital uh, and I, I drove down to Wanaka in the south of New Zealand for a kind of almost like a development camp uh, for Paralympic sailing. 
and uh, you know, sailing was my background, so that was that was cool. I knew I knew how to sail, but not as a paraplegic. And what I saw there from the guys was just you know, <laughs> it just stretched my it just stretched my perception of what what you could do. You know, and um, you know they were just hopping out of their wheelchair, shuffling along the beach, um, transferring into these boats, and uh, you know nothing was a problem. And again, that just gave me hope that I could uh, you know, I could could do the same, you know, it was, it was awesome. So yeah, if you're listening out there, you know, just try something with, uh, with, with your local wheelchair team or, um, uh, you know, some, some other wheelies that are doing something, something cool. And, uh, and I think you'll be surprised at, uh, at how much fun it is and how much you learn from them. Yeah. I mean, uh, it doesn't have to be a group of people. It could be one person, you know, it could be, you know, those, those kind of things. We, we've got a big event next week, Nadex, and crazy as it might sound to most people, we're actually not looking to sell anything at the event. With Team Brit, that's the probably you know, the most successful disabled racing team. I think they've got forty-five people with ARDS licenses now, so that's a full racing license, um, racing in able-bodied class. Um, and their their driving simulator is going to be on our stand, and airability with their flying simulator is going to be on our stand. And the you know the tagline to the stand is "Don't let your disability define you." Yeah, so that's just mm. you know it's just that kind of thing that just showing people that you know you can do anything you want if you put your mind to it, but you'll do it slightly different than you did as a walker. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, so you mentioned you work 60 to 80 hours a week. Uh, I do the same. What are some of the tips and tricks you can share around how you sustain that that level of intensity? Like how do you how do you look after yourself? What what are some of the things that you've learned over the years? Have a good wife. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree with you there wholeheartedly. So so yeah, you're you're very much a team, aren't you? You know, like my, my wife supports me tremendously, you know, as I support her as well, but you, you are a team. Yeah, the wife works in the business now and and, and, and it's fantastic and, we, you know, we, we are such a good team. Of course, we're like husband and wife. We do occasionally have an argument. But, you know, the <laughs> fact that, the fact that you, um, you know, she does a hell of a lot. You know, she does the, the washing, the ironing, you know, the tidying up, and then we're working, and then we're just two kids, you know, a five-year-old and a, and a 13-year-old going on 35. Um, and, you know, and, and your life is just full. But I think the fact that if you consistently keep that level of, you know, just pushing it that little bit, just push you, push your body that little bit further, my I find that when I relax, I just fall asleep. Mm-hmm. But, you know, for me, the worst thing I can do at night is just lay down on the couch because I'm asleep within 10 seconds. But, <laughs> but if I'm constantly moving all the time, if I'm constantly doing something, you know, if I stay sat in my chair, that, that, those, those are the times when I can just, um, you know, maintain that level of but the moment you relax boof, that's it everything just goes so when i'm on holiday for two weeks i'm just whoosh, completely chilled and, and i think that's the secret to it i really do think the secret is just allow your body to to get into that don't, you don't need to i don't i don't know any fitness to condition my body um in fact i'm the laziest person in the world at the moment i used to do lots of fitness and my wife 
bought me a handbike, bought me from my own company a handbike for my year. It's crazy, but let's not get into that. Um, <laughs> uh, but so, so I've got a handbike now. Um, I've been out and out a couple of times, but you know, that's I've got to push myself now to go and start getting that little bit fitter because I am 51. You know, I'm not I'm not the 21 year old that could just do anything before, but I think the fact that I am always wanted to do a bit more is is the one that keeps me going. Hey, just on the relationship front, how do you keep your relationship going with uh, you know with when one of you has uh, you know a, a physical um, condition? Stay husband and wife, and don't become um, patient and carer. Mm. So, uh, you know, uh, I'm very fortunate that I deal with my all of my own, um, you know, medical size of things. I deal all with, with my own day-to-day routine and everything else. Um, I think the moment you step over that line and become patient and carer, that's when the relationship then loses its its respect. Yeah, I hear that time and time again. I, I know people that have uh, their partners as their primary caregiver, you know, help them get dressed, etc. And I've I've heard that that just is a massive strain. And then I hear others that have a, a you know some assistance with a personal care that that uh, do those tasks, and um, and then they are able to maintain that you know their relationship. They keep that side of it separate. Yeah. And I mean that's my that's my own personal call on it. Um, you know, a number of other people work with it quite well in that way because you know they can work with it well that way. Um, but for me, we are husband and wife, and this year we celebrate twenty years together. So you know, Boston is calling. Congratulations, mate! That's that's fantastic. So, Stuart, tell me, what does the future hold for for you and Cyclone Mobility? And where can people learn more about uh, about, about your life and your company? Is this the time I can do a plug? You can definitely do a plug. Go go for it. <laughs> well, the web, the web address is cyclomobility.com. Um, I, I think that that's essentially the 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 the, the, the gate to seeing what we do. We're not double glazing salespeople. We don't want to sell people equipment that we, you know, that that we don't think's right for them. Um, in fact, I normally spend a lot of time in the office at the moment, but I've been out on a demo today with one of the Quadrix vehicles, and the woman thanked me for coming out to see her. And that, you know, I said, well. I, I don't really think you should be thanking me because I'm trying to sell you something. She said, no, she said, I've had the most enjoyable day I've had in a very long time. And, you know, oh, we did some crazy stuff. And she burst the tires on my uh, Quadrix. So, <laughs> uh, so we, we did, uh, we did some real fun stuff and we went up steps, down steps across this. Uh, it is just immense what you can do in those vehicles. And, uh, it's just for us, everybody, we were a 50-50 split, able-bodied and disabled working in there. Everybody at the front line dealing with people, with products, is themselves a wheelchair user. And at this moment in time, they're all spinally injured. But we just we tell people about the product, we show them what it does, and if they like it, 
they buy it. If they don't like it, we're quite happy to advise them, you know, what else is out there on the market and we'll see them in two years when they buy the wrong product. <laughs> yeah, nice. That's fantastic. Well, Stuart, hey, thanks so much for joining me today. It's been wonderful to chat with you. Uh, some real insights into, uh, you know, the the old days, if you were, and, um, yeah, those exciting times. I'm going to look up some of those names that you recommended because I think there's some real history there that I'm that I'm excited to learn more about. And, uh, yeah. if, you know, of course, you're always welcome to uh, to – uh, come and stay with us when you're in New Zealand, and uh, and I, I look forward to um, catching up with you uh, when I'm in the UK next. Super, yeah, uh, absolutely fantastic. I'm going to finish with one note. It's from a, an incredibly good friend of mine, a guy by the name of Rainer Kushal, and you'll have probably heard mm. um, of of Rainer's products. Um, and it, one of his sayings, he's had a number of different sayings, but one of his sayings is, "The difficult takes a while." The impossible takes a little bit longer. <laughs> hey, that's so good. It gives me goosebumps thinking about that. Uh, so, yeah, get out amongst it, everyone, and um, and take take Rainer Kuchel's advice and, um, and and get after it. Um, follow, your, follow your dreams and make it happen. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Stuart. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and meeting today's Adaptifier. To learn more about Adaptify and the products we have in development, products that will increase freedom for wheelchair users, go to adaptdefy.com. That's A-D-A-P-T-D-E-F-Y.com. We're also on all the major social media platforms at Adaptify. Follow us there for more behind-the-scenes looks and more up-to-date information on product releases. Hope you enjoyed this podcast. Look forward to catching you next time.